Great. Well, we're going to go ahead and, uh, and get started here. Yes, we're going to get started. So, can end your conversations. <laughs> Wrap it up. So this this morning, are we? This is so much friendliness. I hate to I hate to quiet it down, but we're. <laughs> I know. Okay. Uh, so guys, we are continuing in our sermon series this morning, of uh, about the questions that God asks, right? And if you remember, we started this, this sermon series a few weeks ago. We started with Adam and Eve way back in the garden. And this question that God asks Adam and Eve, where are you, right? And we talked about Hagar a little bit later in Genesis. And God asks her the question, where are you coming from and where are you going? And then last week, Dave was here. And, uh, and he preached about the story of Jacob, also in Genesis, where God wrestles with Jacob and then asks the question, who are you? And what we're seeing in this sermon series is that God is very interested in asking us questions because he's very interested in drawing near us and exposing our hearts. And that in doing that, in exposing our hearts, that what he desires to do is to meet with us and to have compassion on us. And so we're gonna go into another Old Testament text today where God asks another question. So I'm gonna ask Savannah to come up. And Savannah is gonna read uh, our text for us this morning. It's out of 1 Kings so this is 1 Kings uh, 19, verses 1 through 18. Here you go, Savannah. And as Savannah reads, I want you to be listening for, like we did a few weeks ago, the question that God asks. He asked the same question twice, okay? So listen for the question that God asks in our reading this morning. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time. And touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank, and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Oreb, the mount of God. And there he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. 
And he said, Go and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains, and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go and return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazal to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshai, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elijah, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, <laughs> you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazal shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elijah put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. God, we are uh, we're thankful for your word, Lord, that you desire to speak to us. Uh, Lord, we trust that, you, that you're here, that you've come to us, and Lord, that out of this story uh, from hundreds of thousands of years ago, Lord, that you, you have something to speak to us, to our hearts, and so we ask that you would do that, that you'd be softening our hearts to your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So as we kind of get started this morning, I think one of the things we have to do is kind of orient ourselves to where we are in the Old Testament, right? We spent quite a bit of time these last few weeks unpacking different stories from Genesis, but what's happened kind of in the narrative arc of the Old Testament is we've moved on a little bit. So if you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about Hagar, and uh, the son that she had to this, with this man, Abraham, that God had made promises to Abraham to make his people very numerous and that through Abraham, God was gonna bless the world. And then the week after that, right, we talked about Jacob. Jacob is kind of a continuation of Abraham's line and Jacob had 12 sons and these 12 sons become kind of the foundation of the nation of Israel. So where we are in the story now with Elijah is that those 12 sons have grown into this nation and they've, you know, they were in captivity and slavery in Egypt, they come out of Egypt and now they're in the land that God has given them. But what has happened to them in this land that God has given them, right? God has called his people to be a blessing to the nations, that they would manifest who God is to the people around them by the way that they lived in relationship with God. But the people had failed to do that that they had kind of turned their back on God. They were worshiping all of these other gods. And that in this, in this specific story, what we find is that there's this king, Ahab, and his wife, Jezebel, who are the king and queen of Israel. And the king and the queen of Israel were supposed to, their, their charge from God is that they were supposed to lead the people toward the Lord, right? They were they were leaders in this covenant community and their job was to steward the people and direct them to, in the worship of God. But what was happening in this case is that the king and the queen of Israel were leading the people away from God. There was actually a state-sponsored program of idolatry. That's what was going on. 
It says there are idols under every green tree, is the description, right? On every hill. And what the people were doing is they were worshiping these gods, uh, the Asherah pole, Asherah, and Baal, kind of local Canaanite deities. And at the same time, they were worshiping the God of Israel, or Yahweh, as the name he gives himself in the Old Testament. And they were worshiping both. But what we know from the character of God, right, is that you can't worship two different gods. That honoring other gods is dishonoring our God. And so what God did in this case, and what he did kind of throughout the history of Israel, is he would raise up prophets. And the role of a prophet was to go to the people and and go to the king and say, hey, wake up. You're not living in line with who God has called you to be. That, That was the role of a prophet, to remind, to remember, to rebuke, to call the people back to faithfulness. So that's Elijah, Elijah, that's his role. That's what he's been doing. And so we're entering in here in this chapter kind of in the middle of Elijah's ministry. And what we're gonna see, what we see in Elijah, it shows us something about ourselves. It shows us our need for the Lord because we see Elijah's need for the Lord. And then we're gonna see how God meets him in compassion and that's gonna tell us how God meets us compassionately in the midst of our need. And we'll talk a little bit about what it means for us to receive the compassion of the Lord in those places. It's our need, God's compassion, what it means to receive the compassion of the Lord in those places. And if that outline sounds a little bit familiar to you as if we've used it in previous weeks, it's because we have. So you're not wrong about that. Uh, And that's because, like we talked about, God desires to do the same thing with these questions over and over again, to expose our need and to meet us in our need. We have great need of that, right? Like I think about what we've been through in the last year and a half, two years, what we're realizing we're still going through. And what we want, what I want more than anything is to put that away from us, to move on, to be done with it. I don't think that's what God has for us. That he actually desires to meet us in the hurt and the pain and the fear that we have felt and that we feel. And we see it really broadly in our culture, this desire to kind of forget what's, what's happened. That hap- this happened roughly um, 100 years ago, okay? It was called the 1920s. You may notice the Roaring Twenties, right? That after the horror of World War I, which is horrendous, that the people came back and they said, we wanna forget everything that's happened and so we're gonna live in opulence and decadence and, and try to drown ourselves in the kind of the entertainment and the pleasure of the world to forget what's happened. There was a whole decade given to that. I saw that when I was in the airport this last weekend, right? We're all trying to say, hey, I am ready to get out. Take me wherever I can go that's away from here, finally. And that's not a bad thing in and of itself, but there's something in us that does just want to move on and forget what's happening. God is saying, no, lean in and let me talk to you about your hearts this morning. I think that's what he has for us. So let's talk about where we see Elijah, where he is in his need. And it's, man, it's, it's very clear in this passage, right? We see it in verses four and five. That Elijah went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat under a broom tree and he asked that he might die. Saying, it is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life for I am no better than my father's. And he laid down and he slept that one of the first things we see about Elijah in this story is that he is a man who is exhausted. 
He's worn out emotionally, mentally, spiritually, physically. Do you, do you connect with that at all? The idea of being exhausted? I'm seeing a few nods, yes, okay. Uh, being a person in the world is exhausting. Life, life is, it is a struggle, right? That's true about life. It's true about every person in this world. There's no amount of privilege that can insulate you from the exhaustion of life, the pain of life. It's a struggle. That's true about life generally, and friends, it is also true about the Christian life, isn't it? There's actually, there, there are unique ways that struggle and tiredness, exhaustion come into our lives when we are following Jesus. Because what happens when, when you've, your heart of stone has been changed into a heart of flesh is now there's been an internal struggle ignited within you, this battle between the flesh and the spirit. That can be a really tiring thing, can't it? Resisting sin in your life? Becoming the person God has created you to be? We talk about here how uh, part, of, part of following Jesus is being on mission with Jesus. But one of the things he's called us to as followers is that we would be laboring with him, right? That we'd be disciples who are making disciples. Okay, I don't know if you've ever tried to give your life away to somebody else. That is a, it can be a very exhausting thing, can't it? Not to mention the external struggles that come into our life when we, when we follow Jesus. The pressures from other people and, and, uh, and, and other forces of evil that are arrayed against us is what scripture says. And really, what it means to take on this identity as a follower of Jesus is to become a refugee in this world. It means that this world is not our home. That we're living in a culture that's not ours, that we don't belong to. And we're moving toward the home that God has prepared for us, but that journey of living here and waiting here for that home that's to come, that's a tiring, that can be an exhausting, an exhausting journey, can't it? And certainly that is some of what Elijah is up against here. But even more than that, we know that Elijah has just come literally from a mountaintop experience. So that we, we, if you wanna read about kind of the background of this, you can go back a chapter and read in Kings 18 what has just gone on. But I'm gonna try to give you the Cliff Notes version. It's a really, I think it's a fascinating story, but I'm gonna try to just stay high level, okay? Okay, it's hard for me, but okay, here, so here's what happens. So there are, all these, there are all these people worshiping idols in Israel, right? And there's this drought that Elijah has kind of like called down as a way for to kind of wake the people up. And it's in the midst of this drought and Elisha goes to the king, Ahab, and he says, hey, Ahab, get all of your priests of all of these other gods together and we're gonna have a face-off. Whoa, okay? Face-off on this mountain, Mount Carmel. Or I guess if you're from California, Carmel, right? So they go to the top of this mountain and he tells the priests of Baal, he says, you go ahead. He says, build an altar, right? So they build an altar and he says, what, I, what, what we're gonna do here is we're gonna see who can call down fire from heaven. And so the priests of Baal, they build their altar and they lay their sacrifice out and they run around the altar all day trying to call down fire from heaven from their gods. It, it says they're cutting themselves and Elijah is making fun of them. He's like, oh, your gods, what are they doing? Are they taking a nap, right? Are they relieving themselves? What's going on here? Nothing happens. And then it's Elijah's turn. And he himself, there are like 850 of these other prophets, it's just him. And he builds the altar himself. So he moves all these rocks or he builds this altar. He takes the wood and lays it out. He prepares the sacrifice. And then, then he tells people, hey, he digs this giant trench around the altar himself. And he tells them, I want you to go get a giant 
jug of water and pour it over this altar. So they do. They do it again, do it again. And they do it so many times the trench around the altar fills up with water. And then Elijah prays and fire falls from heaven, consumes the sacrifice and dries up all the water in the trench. No one else seems amazed by that. Yes, thank you, Duke. Wow, right? That's like, this is movie stuff. This is, this is cinematic gold. And then, I won't get to talk about this for a long time, but uh, they gather up all these prophets and they kill them, all these false prophets. Whoa. And what happens is that, and then, and then the drought ends. And the Lord is sending water, he's watering the land, and so, uh, so Elijah has this confrontation with, uh, with Ahab and Jezebel hears about it the, So the, with the king and then the queen hears about it and what she says is uh, to Elijah, she sends a messenger and the messenger says, and this is what we read about in our chapter today, uh, may the gods help me if I don't do to you what you just did to all these prophets. And she threatens him, I'm gonna come and I'm gonna kill you. And Elijah's, re- Elijah's reaction to that is that he runs away, he flees, he's terrified. And it's easy to read that and think, what is going on here, right? Elijah has just had this like incredible experience with the Lord. And then someone threatens him and he runs away. Like what, what, is, what is happening here? They're actually critical scholars, like people who study the Bible but don't believe the Bible is God's word, who would say uh, that whoever put this story together put it out of order because they say it's unbelievable that someone would run away after this thing happening. But just think about for a minute what it is like to be a person, okay? Isn't it true that sometimes after your great and greatest mountaintop experiences, after some of the greatest achievements in your life, that, that is actually the, those are the things that exhaust you the most? Right? Physically, emotionally, spiritually. I was talking to a friend about this a few weeks ago, a few months ago now, after I finished ordination. And I was really, I felt like I was kind of bottoming out emotionally. And he said, hey, this is super normal. He said, when people get up and give their, their, they defend their thesis or their dissertation, uh, that he coaches people, just expect that you will face a few weeks to a few months of depression. Because you've built your whole life around achieving this thing, and now that it, it happens, and now that it's passed, what you're gonna find is you're gonna be exhausted. And that's true for Elijah. And so as irrational as, as it may seem, right, that his exhaustion has actually changed the way that he perceives the world. That his exhaustion in, his, has changed the way that he experiences his own emotions. That we, when he experiences being afraid, right, which like that's a legit thing to be afraid of somebody threatening you with death. Um, but instead of remembering the God who has just defended him in the face of really long odds, right, he runs away. What that tells us is that exhaustion often changes the way that we interact with our own emotions and with the world around us. And that Elijah has come to this place uh, of really intense spiritual darkness in his life. Under the broom tree saying, Lord, just take my life from me. He's full of despair. He's saying, death would be better than this.
of the things we, we, I want you to see here, that we've got to see here, is that scripture is no stranger to our darkness. Because Elijah's experience here is far more common than we want to admit. That many of you, most of you, probably all of us have had moments like this of saying to the Lord, Lord, this is too hard. I can't do it. I don't want to do it. And scripture doesn't shy away from those things. It acknowledges that that is a normal and a regular part of the spiritual experience. That doesn't mean that you're a person who lacks faith. This, is the, this, is, this guy is like a paradigm of prophetic work in the Old Testament, and even Elijah experiences this. And you think we're gonna escape from it? No. So normal. So normal. And what this passage shows us is how compassionate God is in meeting us in those places. That the call of the Christian life is not that we would dig ourselves out of them or that we would shame ourselves for experiencing them, but that we would allow God to meet us and minister to us in those places. Where are you exhausted? Maybe even from good things. Where are you beat down or despairing? Maybe it's overall. Maybe it's a specific place in your life. Maybe you're exhausted from your running from the Lord. What are you afraid of? Where have you given fear permission to run your life? Where are you in need this morning? Because in that place, your God has compassion for you. You can look with me at verses five and six in our passage. All right, so Elijah, at this point in the story, right, he's, he's run away from this queen who's threatened him. And uh, so there are two kingdoms in Israel at this point. They've had a civil war. So there's the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. He was a prophet in the northern kingdom, Israel. So he's left the northern kingdom. He's run into the southern kingdom and he's run to the southernmost part of the southern kingdom. He's like run to the Rio, Gra- Rio Grande, right? And he's left his servant there and then he crosses it. He, he's just like, he's trying to get away from God. He's, he's run away. And that's where he is, under the broom tree. And this is what happens. God comes to him. And Elijah, he lays down and sleeps under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. And he looked. And behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. First of all, if an angel wakes you up from a nap, how is this your reaction, Right? Very calm, very measured. So I don't, I don't know what this tells us about Elijah, but I just think that when I wake up from a nap, that is not how I respond, right? When someone's shaking me. Anyway. Uh, so Elijah's there under the broom tree, right? In this place of abject depression and darkness. And the angel of the Lord comes and, and wakes him up. And what the angel has done is prepared a meal for him on hot stones. It's like while he was sleeping, the angel came and fired up the griddle and made him pancakes or something, right? And this detail has just haunted me this week that this was not like a poof miracle, you know, where like all of a sudden the, the hot cake shows up. But the angel came and made the food for him. Which means that the angel was, was sitting there while Elijah was sleeping, 
which is a very intimate thing, isn't it, to like sleep in the presence of somebody else? And he wakes him up and he, f- he feeds him and then he gives him water, which like, there's, no, there's not a tap, right? Elijah would have had to, I've been watching Alone, if you guys have watched that show, okay? Wow, you have to go and look for your own water in the wilderness? Elijah didn't have to do that, it was just there in a jar. So the angel ministers to him and then puts him back to sleep. Just take another nap, man. And then he wakes up, does the same thing over again. Isn't that so compassionate of God? That God does not despise Elijah's humanity. He doesn't shame the fact that he is exhausted. God gave those limits to Elijah. He created him with the need to eat and with the need to sleep. And God honors those things when he comes to him in his exhaustion. He feeds him and he gives him, he gives him rest. So kind. It makes me think of Psalm 23, right? It talks about our, our good shepherd, that he makes us lie down in green pastures. Why do you lie down? To go to sleep, right? He leads us beside still waters so that we can drink. He prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies so we can eat. And yes, there is spiritual significance to all those things. There's metaphor of metaphorical nature to that. But in this passage, this is not a metaphor. This is, this is actual rest, actual eating, actual sleeping. That God does not despise our humanity and the call is for us not to do that either. That in our places of exhaustion, one of the gifts the Lord gives to us is, is sleep and the gift of eating and drinking. Now, God doesn't leave him there. What he does is he strengthens him. That's what the angel tells him. He says, you gotta eat and you're gonna go in the power of this food into the wilderness because I'm not just gonna leave you here. I'm taking you somewhere. And so Elijah goes further into the wilderness and he spends 40 days on this mountain waiting on God. And then God asks him the question. What's the question? What are you doing here? Listen to what Elijah says. This is verse 10. I, man, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, throw down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. That's what I'm doing here. It's your fault. What am I doing? You're the bitterness and the anger in that? I don't think I'm making it up. I think that's there textually, you know? Look what I've done for you. Look what it's gotten me. My hopes are shattered. This is not what I expected you to do. I'm alone and I'm afraid, is what Elijah says. I am the only one left. That's got to react to that. Well, he sends this storm, right, that like crashes rocks and a fire that consumes, I don't know, all the brush on the mountain or something and then a, a giant earthquake, but the Lord is not in any of those things. And then what does he do to Elijah after that v- very uh, intense response? He whispers to him, hey, what are you doing here? And Elijah gives the very same response. 
And I've kind of wondered, like, how did he say it, you know? Like, did he just kind of put his finger back in the air and say it all over again? Or did he kind of like hang his head, head and mumble it? Oh, I've been very zealous for the Lord of hosts. I don't know. I'm not gonna tell you the way he did it because that's not in the text, so that would just be imagining. But it's fun to imagine, right? What God is doing is he's peeling back the layers of Elijah's heart and he's saying, oh, I know why you're here, but do you know why you're here? Do you know what you're doing here? Because what does a whisper do, right? It, It draws you in. You gotta lean forward to hear the whisper. And what God does is he speaks to Elijah in all of the ways that his despair has disfigured his view of the world. Because that's what we see here is that in his despair and in his exhaustion, uh, his discernment, this gift that God has given him as a prophet of God to understand the world and what's happening in the world, he started to misuse that gift and he's seeing things in the world that aren't true. Like he says, I'm alone. And God says to him, you are not alone. There's 7,000 people left who have not bowed their knees to these idols but your feeling of exhaustion has made your feeling of being alone and taken that feeling and made it reality, made you believe you are alone. And Elisha, that's not true. You hear the compassion of God in that? To, cor- to correct and reshape the ways that his exhaustion and his depression have, have disfigured the world that he's living in. It's the same thing with his fear, right? He's afraid of his life being taken away and God says, no, I've, I've still got work for you. I want you to go anoint this guy and go anoint this guy and go anoint this guy, which means you're not gonna die. You don't have to be afraid. I've got work for you. I'm done, right, Elijah said. And God says, you will be done. I'm gonna have you appoint your successor, Elisha, which is confusing because the names are so similar, but they're different, okay? Elijah and Elisha. The guy says, I want you to go anoint him, but you're just not gonna hand the baton off. You gotta train this guy, and I'm gonna be with you. So you see, very slowly, what God is doing is God is reshaping Elijah's view of the world. He's he's correcting the ways uh, that, that his exhaustion and his despair have disfigured the way that he sees the world. And that is a compassionate thing for God to do, isn't it? And we worship the same God. That's the same God who has compassion on you in the midst of your darkness and despair, in the midst of your exhaustion. But we have an even clearer picture of God's compassion on us through Jesus Christ, don't we? Guys, Jesus knew what it was to be hungry and tired. One of my, one of my favorite verses in scripture is when Jesus is out in the wilderness being tempted and he hasn't been eating for 40 days, you know, 40 nights. Uh, and it says, Jesus was hungry. Yeah, because Jesus was a human. And you're hungry after 40 days, which is such a gift to us to know that when our Lord came down here and took on flesh, he didn't somehow become a superhuman. He took all of the limitations that we experience as humans, which included being hungry and at times being tired. That's why he falls asleep in the boat. You know, There's another story where he does that. In the middle of a storm, because he's super tired. He was exhausted. Our Lord took on those limitations. And he knew what it was to be depressed and despairing. Think about Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane before his crucifixion, where Elijah says, take my life, 
what Jesus says is, Lord, spare my life, but if not, I give it up willingly. Jesus isn't under a tree. Jesus gets put on a tree. He carries that cross with him up onto a mountain. And what Elijah says here that was not perfectly true about his life was perfectly true about Jesus. He was zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, right? Kept the law perfectly, loved the Lord God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength, and his neighbor as himself. And yet, unlike Elijah, he was left totally alone. That on the mountain, as he's carrying the cross, as he's, as he's hanging on the cross, right? He doesn't get a whisper. He gets silence from God the Father, a silence that's deafening. And in fact, there is a storm, right? The kind of storm that splits rocks and tears veils. The kind of fire that consumes an earthquake that opens up a chasm. What comes upon Jesus is the judgment of God because that's what the picture of all of these things is. It's a picture of God's judgment and God doesn't come to Elijah in judgment but when Jesus was on the mountain carrying that cross, God came to him in judgment. And what Jesus took on himself was all the wrath that we deserve, hearing not even a whisper from God, crying out, why have you forsaken me? Why? Because of God's great compassion for you and for me. Because of God's great love for us. That what Jesus was doing there on the cross was was opening up a way for us to be in relationship with God, to experience the compassion and the love of God on our behalf. And so because of that, we're able to come with God with confidence to receive his compassion, to surrender to his compassion. So what does that look like? That we receive the compassion of the Lord? And first, guys, uh, crying out is a really important part of receiving the compassion of the Lord. That what Elijah did under the broom tree Lord, take my life from me. That's an important step in this. Because what Elijah is doing is acknowledging and groaning out of the depth of his pain and acknowledging that the Lord has responsibility for it. Elijah is not free to take his own life because his life belongs to the Lord. And he's calling out and he's saying, God, I belong to you. What are you gonna do about this? That's a part of us stepping into, surrendering to the compassion of Jesus is acknowledging where we are and acknowledging that to God. Another way that we receive the compassion of the Lord is accepting the way God wants to care for you in the midst of your creaturely limits. Okay, we've been watching the Olympics at our house, right? And the commercial that we are tired of seeing there are many of them, uh, is the one for uh, Imgality, do you remember this one? Where the backstroker and then the woman that doesn't have legs stands and looks at the camera and says, uh, look at me. And you're like, I am, I'm watching the TV for crying out loud, right? And it's, it's this whole uh, ad for migraine medicine. And the point that they're making is like, even Olympians get migraines, yeah. Which is, we spend the, the, 
the time not in the commercial break admiring these people for their ability to be superhuman. To, to push past their limits. And what the commercial reminds you is even Olympians have limits. We can't escape them. That's part of what makes us human. Actually, trying to, trying to get out of our limits doesn't make, us less, doesn't make us more human. That makes us less human. And so one of the ways that we receive the compassion of the Lord is that we surrender to the limits he's put on our lives. We receive his compassion as we acknowledge that we need to sleep, that we need to eat, that we need to rest. If you're, if you're gonna try, if you're gonna step into this journey of receiving the Lord's compassion for you in the places of your greatest darkness, you're gonna have to do it in a way that acknowledges your own limits. And that you taking the time to rest is an important part of that process. Because without resting, friends, it is very hard to hear the whisper of God to you. And when you're so busy, when we get so busy denying our limits, it's very hard to hear the whisper of God to us. We receive his compassion, we surrender to his compassion as we do that, and that in the silence and in the rest, when we, when we do the work of letting the Lord expose our hearts, that we let him point out the ways that our despair and our darkness has disfigured the way that we see him and see ourselves and see our world. And that very gently we would let his truth correct us, to tell us what's true, even when it doesn't feel true. And that is a process. Elijah was on the mountain for 40 days before God spoke to him, right? It takes time. The arc of this in our lives, it can be very long. That's okay. God is at work meeting with you, caring for you, having compassion on you. And you can be assured of that because of what Jesus has done for you. that when you seek, you will find because you have been found by Jesus. And he delights to give good gifts to you, even in the midst of your darkness and your despair, if that's hard to believe. And we're gonna celebrate that. We're gonna acknowledge that, participate in that as we come to the Lord's table this morning. Because think about this. So God uh, sends an angel, right, who cooks for Elijah, gives him a meal. Uh, Jesus well, he cooks a lot of meals for his friends, actually, you know? A lot of fish, they eat a lot of fish together. But what Jesus has given us is not, uh, he hasn't come and, and prepared hot cakes for us on a griddle. What he did is he gave us his body. He said, this is my body which is broken for you. This is my blood which is poured out for you. He gave us himself, and then he says, come and feast on that. That's what we do when we take communion. We feast on that. Guys, what we believe about uh, what we're about to do is that our God is really and truly present with us through this sacrament in a very specific and unique way. That as we take the bread and the juice, uh, that Jesus is with us, he's ministering to us. The Westminster Confession says that he is, uh, he's strengthening us with grace. That, that in coming to the table, there's a very real strengthening that happens in us. There's compassion that God is having on us that he's meeting us in the place of our deepest need as we come to the table. So I'm gonna, that's what we're gonna participate in. 
Now what you gotta remember, guys, is this table is for needy people. It's for uh, people that are like Elijah in his place of despair. But despair doesn't disqualify you. That's the very people that this table is for. It's for people who need a physical reminder of what Jesus has done for them because sometimes it's hard to hold on to and hard to believe. That's why he gave this to us. And if, and if you're here and uh, you're not a follower of Jesus, this table isn't for you yet. The invitation, yes, is come. Come and, and find the one who has come to find you. Yes, come. But the, the way that we come uh, first is in baptism, right? It's, it's acknowledging that we belong to him. And then this is the sacrament we do continually as a reminder. And so if, if you are not in Christ yet, man, use this time to think and to pray, to acknowledge, because the question still stands for you, what are you doing here? I pray that God would be meeting you. And if you're in Christ and there are places in your life where you are saying no to Jesus, where you've got sin that you're telling him, I, I'm not gonna repent of that, I, I will not put that down. Then he says, this table is not for you right now. But he desires to meet you there and have compassion on you. But if you have places in your life where you're saying, where you're stiff arming God and saying, I don't need your compassion, then he says, don't come to this yet. There's a warning for you in scripture. Deal with that first. But if you come in your need for Jesus, then yes, come. What I'm gonna invite you to do uh, is fold, fold down your kneelers in a second, and uh, I'm gonna invite the, the worship team to come on up, and I'm gonna give you some instructions. Here's how we're gonna do this, okay? Is they're gonna play a, a song, and in that first song, what I want you to do is to, to think about your need, to ask the Holy Spirit to show you where your need for Jesus where are you exhausted? Where are you running? Where are you in despair? To show you the sin maybe that's in your life that's a part of that. And that you would be inviting him to come and to meet you in that place. To come and to have compassion on you. So go ahead and fold down your kneelers if you would. You don't have to use them, but I'm asking you to do that so if you want to, you don't have to bug the other person in your row in the middle of communion to ask them to fold it down, okay? So you go, the, the team is gonna, uh, is gonna lead us in worship. You can pray, you can think, you can sing if you want. Uh, and I'll come back up and we will take the elements together. Let me pray for us. God, we confess that we, like Elijah, are a people uh, in great need, God. It's so easy for our darkness and our despair to overwhelm us. And God, we are so thankful that you have compassion on us, that you meet us in the midst of our need and that you desire to nourish us. So, uh, Father, we pray that through the Holy Spirit, you would open our eyes and our hearts to see the places of our deep need. Lord, would you be gentle in exposing that to us as we come before you now?